Welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with me, Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Hello, everyone. Today, it's my pleasure to be speaking with Malcolm Gaskill. Malcolm Gaskill is Emeritus Professor of Early Modern History at the University of East Anglia and is one of Britain's leading experts on the history of witchcraft. His works include the highly acclaimed Witchfinders, a 17th century English tragedy, and Between Two Worlds, How the English Became Americans. And more recently, a fantastic book which I've been reading called The Ruin of All Witches, Life and Death in the New World, which has received quite quite a significant amount of claim, acclaim so far. Isn't that right, Malcolm? I've, I read it that it's a Sunday Times bestseller, it's been shortlisted for the Wolfson History Prize, a Times, Sunday Times and BBC History Book of the Year. It's had plaudits from Hilary Mantel, Sunday Times and BBC History. So it's, it's, it's doing pretty well, eh? It's been uh, very gratifying. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it was quite a surprise, really, I mean, because you spend an awful lot of time writing a book on your own. And by the end of it, you're not sure whether it's of any interest at all or if it's any good or anything. So actually yeah. to kind of, you know, to fledge it out in the world and then find that people are actually reading it and liking it uh, and buying it, um, that, you know, mm. this is actually, uh, you know, tr- tremendously um, rewarding part of the whole process. So, yeah, it's it's done it's done better than any other book that I've ever written before. So in some yeah. ways, I feel like I've been waiting 20 years for this moment. Superb, superb. And, and, all, and all of that hard work is certainly paid off because you're drawing on a very deep well of knowledge in in having written the book and and going about that process i have to say at the top of the call because you and i were talking just before we we hit record about our our previous acquaintance to, to some extent and how how we knew each other previously in in a different context we were talking about digital archives at the time things like the state papers online and other other archives cornell witchcraft collections and things like that and I ran into your book in in Waterstones in Harrogate in North Yorkshire, and and that's what that's what piqued my interest. I thought, oh, hang on a minute, I, I know Malcolm, and so picked up the book and, and gave it a read, and um and that was that was great. It was great to be reminded of of your work and and also to see that. Just in in starting things off, Malcolm, what what I'm interested to to ask and to get into it to start with is is looking at witches because witches is something that that is an area of your focus in. In your research and and it was certainly in your teaching as well so what what was a witch it sounds like a, a fairly banal question but but what was a witch particularly in the period that you cover which i understand to be the mid 16th to the mid 17th centuries yeah it's pretty, it's pretty much my, my period and that's the period in which um you know this phenomenon known as the witch hunt or the great witch craze takes place it's not a particularly medieval thing it's pretty much over uh, by the end of the 18th century across Europe and really by the end of the 17th century it's pretty much over in England uh, and in America. I think the question of what a witch is, I don't think it's a banal question at all, I think it's an absolutely fundamental one because um, we're not entirely sure because we feel it's, for most of it, it's passed out of our experience and actually people in the 17th century didn't really know either. So there were lots of different meanings to which, lots of different facets to this as an idea. And so that everybody could kind of agree that there was a stereotype witch of the, the you know the malevolent old woman. And everybody agreed that, you know, if witches did exist, that they were human beings who 
uh, made some kind of arrangement with the devil and drew power from the devil. But how you actually translated that to real life, how you actually could uh, identify a specific person as a witch, and even more importantly, uh, accuse them at law and have them convicted, that was a much harder thing to do. And so actually the law has an idea about what a witch is. The uh, clergy have an idea, Protestant clergy particularly have an idea of what a witch is. Um, and then there's the neighbourhood witch as well. So it's it's actually a very difficult question to to answer simply. And that really these aren't the you know, these aren't just choices of definition. They're in they're in tension with each other um, and that a witch can mean a different thing depending on the context. But again, that's not just a, a historical um, difference of opinion. That's something that was very live at the time that nobody really could, in the end, actually decide definitively what a witch was yeah very interesting because you talked there about what other people thought a witch was rather than somebody defining themselves as a witch so it's what do the protestants think a witch is versus what the law thinks a witch is etc and so i just wonder have you come across much in in terms of the the research that you've done of people who've identified themselves as witches and from their point of view would they have, have said that there are different types of witches? Would you say, you know, we've, we've heard this phrase before in popular culture of white witches as opposed to, mm -hmm. I suppose, um, I don't know what the alternative would be, dark black witches, dark spirits, that, that sort of idea. Is that something that you've come across in your own research? Well, of course, some people do confess to witchcraft. And I think from the modern perspective, we often assume that if you confess to witchcraft, you must have been mad or you must have been tortured. And that, well, you know, that is uh, undoubtedly the case in, in, in some instances. But there is the possibility for people to believe that they have this power themselves. They may have actually tried to get hold of the power. They may have, um, you know, felt that they were successful in forming a pact with the devil. They may have felt that they formed a pact with the devil in their own hearts, even if they didn't actually meet this dark creature called the devil and, and create some kind of gross physical pact with him. Um, so um, I think that the witchcraft as a power was something that could be real in the minds of people who would confess that they were witches. There were, as you say, white witches. They didn't call themselves witches, but the church particularly said, ah, well, if you're using any kind of magical power, or if you're using any kind of traditional prayer that isn't orthodox Protestant prayer, then you might not realize it, but you are actually a witch because you're over the, the you know, you, you've, you've, you've crossed the line from the acceptable into the unacceptable. And in a very polarized kind of ideology, um, you know, good and evil, Protestant and Catholic, light and dark, which and good neighbor could you know could 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 be arranged in that way and you could be the wrong side of that line so that the witch is something that somebody could claim for themselves although that would have been a very a very self-damning thing to do given that witchcraft is a crime but more often witchcraft is an identity that fearful people um project onto others and it's it's much more about accusing someone of being a witch rather than somebody laying claim to it themselves. Yeah, that's very interesting. It seems like it's a, a term that's been weaponized by people in power who've defined certain things in a certain way. And it isn't just 
like you say, it isn't just Christian or non-Christian. It's about Protestantism and this particular way of of worshiping God and being a Christian, right? And and everything outside of that is is unorthodox. It's something that is is to be frowned upon. And we're going to basically stigmatize it and we're going to cast it out however however we can so it's quite interesting like you say as well somebody self-defining as that as a witch would be putting themselves at, at risk as well so it's probably difficult in that respect to to, to get too much out of that in the primary sources uh, because mm. because of the the inherent risks of doing so what you say about uh, about witchcraft as being an alternative power source is interesting i wonder do you have much that you come across in the historical primary sources uh, along the lines of witchcraft being an, an alternative power source that people have oh out. yeah absolutely which which everybody in the 17th century would understand the the concept of witchcraft being power for the powerless so um that and this i think helps us to understand the kind of dark fantasy that there may be witches living next door to you or witches in the neighborhood who have got it in for you because you know witchcraft like any crime needs a motive what would that motive be envy jealousy spite resentment and um so uh, that you know this is really what the imaginary witch is when i say the imaginary witch i mean the idea of witchcraft which then becomes transferred to a specific person it has to be that someone is has no natural power and therefore that they are drawing on some kind of supernatural power in order to have it in for you. Now, you mentioned just then, you know, about the idea about witchcraft being weaponized as um, an idea by people in power, but that really, that, I mean, that's not untrue, but that the way that most witchcraft accusations happen is not by people in power. It's about people who are perhaps, you know, a little bit, better off or have a little bit more authority but actually witchcraft is a crime which arises from similarity between accuser and accused as much as it arises from dissimilarity because actually if if somebody is much more powerful than you then they just use natural power in order to get the better of you but when people are neighbors and they're locked in this relationship where they're actually very similar that's when i think you get some of the most troubled feelings and where the idea comes from that somebody you can't get one over on somebody else by natural means therefore it must be so, so supernatural means so witches are not all they are sometimes dependents in the community but often they are just people who are quite active in the community and are locked in conflict with others but that that conflict cannot be resolved by any other means and so this is what happens in the ruin of all witches that these are people the accusers and the accused are very very similar they are not yeah um you know their similarities far outweigh their differences and that's because they are neighbors in the way that i've described but that the married couple q and mary parsons at the heart of the story fall foul of the expectations the culture i suppose of their neighbors and that's what marks them out as different but that it's really their similarity and the fact that many of the things that they are accused of, many of their kind of negative um, neighbourly qualities or the lack of neighbourly qualities, many of those things that the, their accusers are guilty of themselves. So there's this sort of transference of a kind of guilt or an unbearable unbear burden of you know, feelings of self-failure, which are then 
projected onto these people but that only really works if these people are actually already quite like you yeah yeah that's quite a good point especially about the power dynamics because if somebody was that much more powerful and they have the the means at their disposal to tackle you anyway so that that's interesting and it brings us on to talking about about springfield the place in which the ruin of all witches is set so so tell us a little bit about that because i'm interested in what you say there about the the peer-to-peer relations between those who are accused of of witchcraft and the the accusers themselves so so how was how was society structured in in springfield and and how was how was power set up in that particular society well springfield is peculiar even amongst colonial plantations so this is a massachusetts frontier township in the middle of the 17th century and it's been founded 20 years 20 15 years earlier by a man called William Pynchon, who's a migrant from England. And he is kind of the centre of all power in this place. So in some ways, he resembles a sort of an old world lord of the manor. He's in charge of everything. And he makes this town possible. So anybody that goes and moves there and lives there uh, is in his debt, literally in his debt, because he provides them with all the things that they need to build a life there. So it means that if you've come from old England, where there is which is overcrowded. There are few opportunities to work. There's no land. Going to Springfield, Massachusetts is amazing because it's got everything, but it comes at a price. So that there is tension uh, between neighbours because there's competition for resources, but there's also kind of tension with William Pynchon as well because you can't ever quite be your own independent man in your own independent household because you're always, to some extent, in thrall to... Pincham. Now, the thing about this town as well is that although it has godly values, I think this is uh, undoubtedly the case. They are a God-fearing community. They're not quite as God-fearing as some of the others. Some of the, the American plantations at this time, in fact, many of them in and around Boston, are transplanted Puritan congregations from England separating from the English church and saying, well, we're going to go over there and live you know, much more according to our own Puritan beliefs and the Bible than we could ever, than would ever be possible in England. The Reformation is always unfinished business in England, and that these are people who've kind of finally had enough, and so off they go. Um, but Springfield's not like that. Spring, William Pynchon found Springfield specifically not to be this, you know, not primarily to be this godly covenanted community, but to make profit. He wants it to be industrious. He wants it to be independent and he wants to make a lot of money from the trade in beaver fur, which is one of the reasons for moving to this part of the Connecticut Valley in the first place, so that he can get beaver uh, skins from the Native Americans at the top of the Connecticut River. Yeah, that's very interesting. And that crossover between the religious values and mercantilism, if you can call it that, where Pynchon has this desire for commercial success he wants to he's a, he's a trader he's he's doing business he's there for business he has a very strong grip on the community and like you say that there's all of this opportunity that springfield offers people in old england but it comes at a price there's something interesting at the end of the book that you mentioned about this in relation to thomas hobbs who wrote leviathan around around was it around the, the same period that um at the same time 1651 yeah 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 and and you you likened um you likened springfield to a hobbesian sort of 
setup. Mm. T- tell us a little bit about that because I think I think this idea, this idea of order and and having somebody kind of look after you in a very paternal way, but it coming at a price. I actually think I actually think the the salience to this idea in relation to us as citizens now and and the role of government so tell us a little bit about that how does how does this all work in terms of what 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 is the the Hobbesian idea in Leviathan and and how does how does it relate to Springfield right so because what Hobbes was interested in was the way that I mean it's just to put it very simply is interested in the idea of the growth of the state and that really if people are to have freedom and to live peaceably with one another there have there has to be within the framework of of the leviathan which is the state now one of the, the questions that uh is uppermost in the minds of migrants to america as it is to political thinkers uh in england in the middle of the 17th century is what is liberty and how do you achieve it now we tend to think of liberty being uh a much broader and more open kind of freedom than they thought for them liberty was a relationship that one had with one's social superiors and with the state defined more broadly and so that what is and this is something which has been developing or really hardening in English life for at least a century before is the idea of a state built upon the law it isn't just about the authority of uh, a monarch it isn't just about the uh, the authority even of parliament, although the relationship between the two is, is extremely important. It's actually about the relationship between the people and government and that, that government needs to be consensual uh, to some extent, but it's also got to have majesty and it's got to have hierarchy and it's got to have the monopoly of violence which is essential to that idea of the modern state. And without it, Hobbes said, you have the war of all men against all men, and that you you just see little bits of this breaking out in Springfield. Because witch hunts quite often take place, as took place in Salem, at moments of political uncertainty, where people actually aren't really sure what good government is, um, are not really sure whether the law is being applied or even if the law is actually valid or legitimate. And so it's the, it's a wobble. And I think that you do see this in Springfield too. Pynchon has, is so, he so embodies authority and the law in this rather remote location that when Pynchon himself uh, becomes a rather a questionable character because mainly because of his religious beliefs and the, the way that he his religious descent to the Puritan orthodoxy as is enshrined in Boston that this actually starts to undermine patriarchy and of course patriarchy is essential to the the Hobbesian Leviathan patriarchy is essential to the idea of the English state and that really that again thinking about this moment of the late 1640s early 1650s is that Charles I is executed in 1649 largely because he's a failed patriarch the patriarchy isn't a isn't a isn't a monolith patriarchy is a a form of government it's a relationship between the people and their superiors it must be reciprocal and Charles in failing in this uh, by failing in this, marks himself out as a bad patriarch, and therefore he commits a kind of treason against the English people. 
And you see this all the way down to even quite humble households, including in Springfield, where Hugh Parsons falls pretty much at the same time as Charles I. Now, they, they're 3,000 miles apart and very different, very different men. But in some ways, they've both failed at the same, um, in the fame, same expectation that had of men in authority. And in the same way that Charles I lets down the nation, Hugh Parsons lets down his household and his neighbourhood and, uh, and is reviled in a very, in a really very similar way. That brings us beautifully on to talking about gender, Malcolm, because gender seems to be a very, very big theme throughout the book. And questions that, that came to my mind when I was reading it is, is what does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be a woman? So, so tell, tell us a little bit more about that in terms of those sorts of expectations that were put on people like Hugh Parsons, who was a brick, a brick maker mm-hmm. in, and, and very and very much necessary within Springfield. People had to go to him to get their bricks. And from what I ascertained from the story, it doesn't seem like a lot of them really want to deal with him, but they have to deal with him. But he seems like a man who's under a lot of pressure that's really bearing down on him because of all these expectations. So tell us a little bit about what those expectations were that were putting him under such pressure. And then maybe move on to talk about some of the, the pressure that that women felt as well, that, that his wife, Mary Parsons, felt as well, please. Right. So the, the, we've got to think about these, these neighbourhoods as political units. So that back in England, for example, the, you know, England is made up of 9,000 parishes. And uh, that really makes up the whole of the state and the relationship between those parishes and the centre of government through law really makes the English state work. So the English state isn't a thing as much, it is a set of relationships. And of course, this is actually true. This is transported to the uh, English colonies in America as well. They have to have hierarchy, there has to be law, there has to be discipline, but there have to be social relationships. Now, the, the, the one of the um, ways in which these relationships work is through honour. Now, we've rather lost the 17th century meaning of honour, but it, what honour really is, is, is sort of coterminous with is, um, or synonymous with is uh, reputation. And this is, you know, you need to have a good reputation because this is what makes it possible for you to work with other people within this political unit of the community. And uh, if you have a bad reputation, that makes life very difficult. So these are rather, especially in the colonies, these are rather uh, vulnerable communities. They're economically vulnerable. Relationships can be rather strained because resources are quite often in short supply. So that makes it all the more important to have a good reputation and and to have good good relations. And that these relationships are gendered, they are structured according, the expectations are structured according to the way that men are supposed to behave and the way that women are supposed to behave. So men are supposed to be forthright and open and industrious and honest and respectable and the rest of it. This sort of, we can imagine what that'd be like. Women, it's really rather similar but they need to be more chaste and they need to be good mothers and they need to be good wives and so on. But the way that the household works is not through the um, uh, the exercise of, of, you know, harsh discipline, 
of the husband towards the wife, but of some kind of symbiosis, some kind of cooperation, where patriarchy dictates that the man is ultimately in charge, but that the rule of the household should be by consent. And if it's not by consent, then actually the man's there's something wrong with the man's authority. So that in a community like Springfield, the man that beats his wife, it's not illegal, but amongst his neighbours, he would consider to have failed because he can't exercise natural authority. And so this is one of the reasons why I think Hugh Parsons is accused of witchcraft, because it's seen that he's not, he can't assert the natural power of a man as a householder. That's what patriarchy it isn't just about being a man. It's about being a successful male householder. And the, the men work within groups within the community and women have their own groups too. And that women are constantly monitoring, surveilling, judging judging each other and gossiping and talking about each other that's how the political life of the community works by people watching and talking now we would find this incredibly oppressive we'd find this to this uh, you know an appalling and unacceptable invasion of our own personal spaces but this is much more acceptable in this society because this is how communities regulate themselves as well as just being individuals who are regulated by the law which would much more the way that you know you and i live today yeah that's that's very interesting there's some quite interesting points to draw out from that in terms of in terms of that that meaning of of honor as well and honor as being reputation and that reputation being a form of currency because it seems as though if you fall foul of that and you are dishonorable or you have a bad reputation then it's easy to become something of a, of a social pariah. And you are being judged all the time. And like you say, it's very invasive as well. Judgments have been made and there are consequences. I think in, in when I was reading the book and I, I noted the number of altercations that Hugh Parsons has with his neighbours at various different times, it, it reads as though they just have to do business with him because he's the only guy they can get bricks from in that particular vicinity. But if they didn't have to do, if he didn't have this indispensable skill then they just cut him off and, and that would be that would be the end of it i think that's absolutely right and that pynchon is to, sorry that hugh parsons is to that extent uh, a kind of mini me version of william pynchon he's a man in the community that everybody depends on because as you say he's got this he can supply this unique thing you know, if you want corn, you could go to half a dozen men, or if you want a barrel made, you'd go to several different men. But if you want bricks, it's Hugh. And the fact that he is so um, he's so objectionable um, means that there is bound to be conflict. But to be honest, even if he wasn't objectionable, I think there would be um, there's likely to have been tension because the, if you are a dependent then you feel some, you are likely to feel some kind of conflicted feelings towards the person, towards your patron, feelings of gratitude, but also feelings of resentment that you can't, that you, you know, you, you can't be free of them. And I think mm. that's a, a human feeling that we can all slightly identify with, you know, yeah. I think um, anyone who's got teenage children would understand that, you know, quite often teenagers uh, want to assert themselves in the world, but they still need lifts and <laughs> things. And actually, yeah. that, that's a sort of, there's not a totally flippant uh, analogy because because it's an ambiguity, isn't it? And that mm. an am ambiguous relationships produce uh, ambivalent feelings, feelings yes. of, of 
um, of gratitude, but also of slight chafing at the fact that you can't entirely be your own person. And I think that's certainly what happens between the, the people of Springfield and uh, Hugh Parsons, and also in the background, their feelings towards William Pynchon as well. Yeah, very interesting. I, I love that parallel between Hugh Parsons and, and William Pynchon. I decided before coming on this call, I didn't want to give too many too too much information away about the books. I think if people haven't read it already, then they should absolutely go ahead and do so. But I'm interested as well, Malcolm, in, in what we're talking about in terms of the religious values of of the town, of the place itself, because it's kind of assumed that there is this thing that we call that is known as patriarchy. There is this thing uh, in terms of the Puritan kind of setup and the the rules, the rules of the game are kind of laid out that people have to play by. What what did that look like? What what explicitly do we mean when we say patriarchy? And what were the sort of religious axioms or laws that people had to live by? Because I get the impression that they were much more strict and, and quite different from what we would be used to today. Like you mm. said before about things being so invasive. So so what were these what were these modalities that that people had to live by? And and what do we mean by patriarchy in that context? Well, one of the reasons for going to one of the reasons for the, the Puritan migrations to America in the 1630s was to restore the charity between neighbours that these migrants felt had was had disappeared. The neighbours were at war with each other and that neighbours disregarded each other and they wouldn't lend things to each other. And there was just this kind of meanness, this cold heartedness that had set into English life because of adverse economic circumstances, um, you know, between the end of the 16th century and the early decades of the 17th century. Now, of course, the irony of this is that this rebuilding of Christian charity in uh, in America actually really only you know what they found was that they ended up behaving in pretty much the same way and I don't think that Christian charity ever really was restored and actually really that these English migrants took took themselves with them and they found that as they rebuilt the English world they're more of that their their old ways you know negative as as well as positive um manifested themselves but this doesn't mean to say that they threw away the idea of Christian charity. I think it just means that there was more unease and more guilt as they found that they were unable to live up to their own ideals. Because in Springfield, everybody knows that you're supposed to be charitable and Christian towards your neighbours. That's what's preached from the pulpit. This is absolutely standard. But in reality, people are envious and grasping and scheming and, they, they you know, looking with green-eyed envy at their neighbour's land and the rest of it, and resenting other people's success, and that this creates a, you know, an internal conflict. So I think that their, their values are very clear, but they're mostly observed in the breach. And so patriarchy is always, patriarchy is something which I suppose I associate more with the politics of the household, and that maybe the Christian charity is something I would relate more to the neighborhood and to the community. But they are, of course, connected because the neighborhood is made up of households. But the internal workings of that the, the household should be according to patriarchy, which, as I say, is not about um, oppressive control from the, the patriarch within the household. It's about having easy natural authority that means you don't have to show this kind of uh, coercive control and that within the community 
the idea is that neighbors should be tolerant of each other and that they should work together and they should be cooperative and especially in a mid-17th century New England plantation, this is especially important because they are often cut off from other sources of, or they're remote from, not completely cut off, but remote from sources of um, assistance, um, which would be usual, say, if they still lived in their English villages, because you could ride to the next village and get something you needed and or whatever you know but often that this the, the they have to kind of rely on each other because they are remote but that's often difficult because they don't like each other so that the, these people strand this is one of the ironies of this story one of many ironies that they are these migrants are stranded in this little world with lots of external dangers um uh, you know the weather disease um hostile Dutch, hostile Native Americans, wolves that prey on the sheep, insects that eat their crops, the rest of it. But actually, the, the, the thing that really bedevils them is one another. That's where the greatest risk lies. That's they, they, they can't quite rely on each other in the way that they know they should be able to. But they're all to blame. Yeah. But that it's just Hugh Parsons and Mary who seem to get, you know, this is where a lot of this uh, these uneasy conflicted feelings are concentrated on this couple as if it's their witchcraft which is to blame for the misfortune of the town um rather than anything else yeah that's interesting that they become a scapegoat or a lightning rod for for all of these other misfortunes and and other people's sense of resentment and jealousy as well i think you, you use a phrase you you identify this tension in the book between Christian obligation and thrusting ambition. And I think that's a very good way of putting it because of course people might have these values and ideals that they that they purport are theirs and that, are, that define their community and are the rules that they, they live by. But like you say, people are still human, people still have these natural tendencies. And it's a case of, do they want to overcome those things? Do they want to, to move on from those things do they want to transcend those things or are they going to kind of live this this dual life if you like exactly but, but speaking of, of duality and and deviance if, if you could call it that William Pynchon talking about William Pynchon's case Pynchon like we've already said it, it kind of has this almost omnipotent role within Springfield but yet he isn't by any means omnipotent in the context of the church is he because he falls foul of the authorities and is charged with with heresy. So, tell us a little bit about that. What 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 is what is heresy? What does it really mean in this in this context? And what what are the consequences for someone like Pynchon, who who is in a very prominent position of power within the town? Yeah. So, um, it's very. It's, it's. I mean, I think it would be an interesting story without the heresy. But I do think there's something about William Pynchon being accused of heresy, which undermines his authority and destabilizes Springfield at this time. And I think that makes uh, witchcraft, a witchcraft accusation more possible. The thing about the, you know, and this is another irony of the story that, that there are, that going back to the start of the Protestant Reformation, that this is about opening up possibilities of interpretation of the Bible. So rather than just accepting the unquestioningly the authority of the Pope um, from Rome, this is actually about, um, you know, allowing religion to be shaped by what the Bible says and by seeking God's 
approval and God's guidance through prayer. They are the really, they are the basics. But of course, this means that religion is subject to interpretation and that the Bible can be interpreted lots of different ways. So this is why that so much of the lot, the history of the Long Reformation isn't about conflict between Protestants and Catholics. It's about the competing claims of different kinds of Protestant interpretation. So that those Puritans who go to America are quite often strict Calvinists. That's what we're really talking about. And um, they have they think that the Reformation in England is a soft thing, a fudge. You know, it's quasi-Catholic um, and it's getting worse under Charles I. And actually what they need to do is to go to their stricter Calvinist uh, religion and build on that in America. Well, they do do that. But that doesn't mean to say that they don't take with them people who still disagree about on finer points of interpretation. So William Pynchon has his own particular ideas about Christ's sacrifice at the crucifixion. And Pynchon's idea is essentially that this was um, that, that there was wrath at the crucifixion, but it wasn't God's wrath. Um, it was the wrath of the devil who made Christ resent the fact that his father was allowing him to die and that really the reason that Christ uh, sacrificed himself was as a display of perfect obedience towards his father well this doesn't seem particularly perhaps particularly um, controversial to us it doesn't seem particularly important but in the mid-17th century this was a significant deviation from the ideas of the Protestant the, the, sorry the Puritan uh, hierarchy in Boston about really what Christ's sacrifice meant. That meant he was a heretic. Now, that the heresy has ceased to be a capital crime. The last heretic is executed in England in 1612. There's no question that William Pynchon is going to be executed for his heresy, but banishment is a, you know, he, he, he is required to recant this um, or get out. And go back to England, and so that it's it can't be permitted because the the thing is the thing here is that the political the religious orthodoxy and political obedience are very much tied together in post Reformation states. These are what sometimes referred to as confessional states. That means that there must be one religion and you must follow it. And if you don't, you are in a sense, you are deviant from the law. Now, by the end of the 17th century in England and in America, there are much great, there's much greater toleration, but it comes very slowly and it comes very painfully because along the way, it, it, it feels like a, to allow the toleration of other religions, like Quakers, for example, who are prominent in late 17th century America as they are in England, to allow that feels to many traditionalists as if all order is being abandoned, all higher ambitions towards finally creating the perfect Protestant state have been abandoned too, and therefore are prone to accusations of, well, as they would have called it, atheism. It's like, oh, you've given up, you've chucked everything away, and now we're all going to hell in a handcart. Right. Wow. There's, there's quite a lot to that. And it, it seemed, so it seemed like the stakes on people having an opinion were very high on religious and doctrinal matters. And, and like you say about interpretation of the Bible, which does seem ironic, like you point out, because the one of the, the thrusts of the, the Reformation was that people could have their own interpretations and their own 
readings of the Bible or an access to the Bible and and that it wasn't just a pope or a religious leader who would pass those interpretations down onto the masses, so to speak. So some interesting tensions going on there as well. And certainly they're, they're interesting to, to read about in the book, to, to dig into further. I would like to come back to witchcraft at the moment malcolm because because i think that there are some interesting things in the book and there are i think at least two chapters i would say when i was reading the book and i was reading the accusations against hugh parsons and notwithstanding the social dynamics and the milieu in which he was i found it very interesting that some of the, the chapters were, were were pretty spooky i think uh strange dreams and that dumb dog i think in particular, where there are these really bizarre accounts of things, of people being in trances and people having curses put on them, strange things happening, people falling off horses on familiar routes, and and all of these things add up, and you, you kind of think to yourself, well, is there something more going on here, or is this all is is this all mere coincidence, or is it people creating a theatre to expel or expose unwanted neighbours? what I, i'm interested this is a conversation we had in the past when we met in person in an entirely different context but i'm interested in what you make of these sorts of accounts because they're quite vivid some of them you know snakes appearing to people in the middle of the night and saying things like death and goodness knows what else what how do you how do you make sense of that yourself do you because one of the strengths of your book, I think, and this has been said in some of the reviews, I think in the TLS review in particular, it notes your compassionate way of writing in that you take you take the primary source evidence at face value. You don't you don't come in as if you know these are all silly superstitious people and I am some enlightened rational being that that knows better than they are. You you do take things at face value. So so how do you make sense of of these quite bizarre sometimes quite alarming accounts that, that come forward and, and some of them particularly in the Hugh Parsons instance it, it does seem like wow is all this really a coincidence is all this just some sort of fabrication or plot against him or is there something more so so how do you make sense of all that well I think that in some ways you've you know my answer is kind of contained in in your question I make sense of it by describing it in a non-judgmental way so um I think that it's the easiest thing in the world with witchcraft narratives is if we don't believe in witchcraft and i'm assuming that most readers of this book don't believe that human beings can draw down the power of the devil to do good or harm i'm making that assumption some will uh, but i think most won't and i think it is and of course witchcraft is at the very least no longer a criminal offense it hasn't been for a, a very long time so to that extent, we do live in a world without that kind of witchcraft. It is, it has passed out of our culture and consciousness to that extent. <laughs> um, the easiest thing in the world is to just to say, well, what was really, what was really happening? There's been loads of histories of witchcraft about this. What was, you know, what were they really suffering? They weren't suffering from witchcraft. Were they suffering from diphtheria? Was Mary Parsons, by seeing the devil, was she suffering from um postpartum postpartum psychosis and so on well they don't use these terms and i think that you know the main purpose of my writing specifically in this book is to try to recreate a world in which these things made sense not for us to make sense of them but to make sense of their world 
and then see what makes sense to them. Because if you do start intervening with present-centered explanations in a description of the past, I think you destroy the, that kind of illusion that you're trying to create as a writer. You're tr you, you, you shatter the integrity of the world that you've spent so long trying to build up. Because the, the, this is a, something which I think a lot of people have inherited from the Enlightenment, is the idea that pre-modern people were somehow a bit dim or they're a bit ignorant or they're just prejudiced or they, you know, they just uh, they live their lives according to fear rather than reason and the rest of it. And, you know, there's a there's a little bit of that that I think that we couldn't quibble about. But that these are intelligent people and they're often very unsure of what they think. They're not obsessed with witches. And that when it comes to accusing or blaming specific misfortunes on witchcraft, they're often very unsure of themselves. What happens in Springfield and what happens in other places where witchcraft accusations get off the ground is that patterns form in people's minds. And we can all, human beings, still do this. We still do it all the time. We perfectly possible for us to add you know, one and one and one and make four, you know, it just, we just come up with a different answer because we, we, our brains have evolved to make patterns between things because sometimes we'll be right. And that if you add, this is so important for this book and so important for understanding the history of witchcraft. If you add the ingredient of emotion, a very high emotion, often toxic emotion, emotions of particularly fear and anxiety and anger and even rage towards um, specific individuals and group once you put that into it then i think it's much more possible to create what we might call conspiracy theories to which of course is still something which is which blights our times perhaps more so than it has for an awful long time and uh and so I think this is what happens. So I think it's the the, the you, you meant use the word coincidence. I think they are coincidences, but they're in the, in the very literal sense of the things that do that occur at the same time, but that meaning is drawn from them by people at this particular moment. Other people, as we discover in the story, when this when this these stories of witchcraft uh, are transferred from Springfield to Boston, they don't mean the same thing anymore. Because there's, these are people looking at this in the cold light of day there. And without the emotion, which is so important at Springfield, then actually one plus one plus one adds up to three after all. And it doesn't actually mean quite the same thing. So I think that but the in writing about it, it is just extremely important to try and explain witchcraft, but not explain it away. This is something I always say to people when they ask. Because if you say, oh, well, actually, they were all suffering, as people sometimes say about the Salem witch trials in the 1690s, that people were suffering from ergot poisoning, ergot being a fungus that grows on damp rye stores. Um, you just explain it away. You know, it's these, this isn't necessarily a good explanation because what we need to confront when we, we, we look at these stories is the power of belief, the power of people to sincerely, sincerely believe that something is happening because actually in that world, it's not necessarily um, inevitable, but it's certainly plausible that that could be the reason. And that the reason, you know, there, there are a, a thousand, thousand, 10,000 cows die in the early modern world for everyone that's blamed on witchcraft. 
Um, but that's because in that, that in most cases, people have a very modern, natural sense of blaming, of, of, of understanding misfortune as just being a natural thing, or maybe blaming it on God. But in that one in the 10,000 case where it's blamed on witchcraft is because lots of different things have come together. Lots of feelings and relationships and instances have come together, often over quite a long period of time, to make that truth, truth in inverted commas, seem very real in their minds at that time. And that's why I would prefer to think about these accusations in the first instance as being sincere rather than just treating them as being prejudicial or, or some other kind of delusion. Yeah, that's interesting. And I remember years ago when we spoke previously, you mentioned that when you, when you were teaching at UEA, you mentioned that all of the, if I recall correctly, that all of the, the history students who were coming in in the first year had to do a module on witchcraft. That's right. Because, they still do. <laughs> yeah, and, and because, because you wanted them to get to grips with reading and studying history at university level and as i recall it was it was that you didn't want them to have this linear sense of history where there are these absolute right answers to things and that they just need to learn what the answers were and what happened at this date and place at this time and who did it and then regurgitate an exam it was more about learning how to think and how to assess and how to analyze gather evidence and and basically interpret that evidence and, and present it in a, in a new form and I, it's always stuck with me has that especially in relation to the value of primary sources because I think it's really really important that we are able to take the past on its own terms not to explain it away but to understand the world in which in which people lived in in the past and perhaps why why they made the decisions that they did um that leads me on to another question Malcolm just in in coming towards the end of this I'm just I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I almost feel I almost feel as though there's a moral or maybe morals to your story. Is that the case? And if so, what is the moral of the story? Well, that's a, a difficult question, but it's an important one. And I think that historians don't or perhaps shouldn't write um, in a way that in, is intended to have a moral, you know, I'm not a, I think, you know, the, the morals in this way or moralism implies some kind of judgment, I think. And I think historians really shouldn't judge. I mean, as you were just saying about, um, you know, taking the past on its own terms, that's about historians not being judges, but being uh, not, in, in some ways, not always taking sides. Now, I don't know, obviously there are limits to this, to some of the more, you know, uh, amoral bestial acts in human history which one can't sit on the fence about but I think when you're trying to understand a, a, you know a, a mental psychological world in the past that it's very important not to be judgmental so I think that the, the you know if there is a moral to be drawn from it not necessarily one that I intended but one that I imagine that readers might take from the book is is actually really rather close to some of the, the the morals which 17th century people tried to impress upon one another which is that this is what happened you know some of these you know these, these excesses of persecution and of alienation and of ostracism take place when people stop looking after each other and people stop showing 
understanding and kindness and and toleration of those around them and of course these are still problems very much for our own world at, at the national level the international level right down to the level of individual communities where people might feel very suspicious towards um, people who are different or people coming uh, into the community so it's it, it seems like rather a kind of banal moral to draw from this that actually we need to you know that it, we need to try to be kind and understanding but i do it's it's as important as it ever was and it really is a failing of those things that leads to the prosecutions of witchcraft in springfield yeah wow i, I love that i i really like that answer malcolm and particularly what you're saying about the historian's job not to be a judge it's not the historian's job to be a judge it's, it's the historian's job to make sense of things and, and to help people to understand things as they were as best they can but i think you're right in the sense that the readers can infer morals to the story and i think i think that's their job and that's very much like you say that's very much an eye of the beholder sort of thing and, and to some people the the morals of the story will be self-evident to them because of the values that they have in their lives and and what guys and like you've just said about the the need to be kind to each other and ironically that is within the within the 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 scripture that that those people were were living by and in, in the sermons that they were hearing were coming from scriptures that talk about loving your neighbor and, and things like that so very interesting to reflect on that very interesting to think about what values actually mean not just in terms of word but also in terms of practice and that's quite again it's quite ironic that that christ in the new testament the words of christ are on the lines of be ye doers of the word and not hearers only and so maybe that was a sermon that was that was missing in Springfield to, to some extent. But uh, <laughs> I think they probably knew it. They, they knew yeah. it. But, but of course, it's the it's if you're aware of these things, but you can't live up to it. That's where you yeah. really get the conflicted feelings. And I think yeah. it's that's what we it's not it's not the presence of too much good or too much bad in Springfield. It's the conflict between the two that really yes. makes it so explosive. Yeah, absolutely. And seeing that play out on a societal level, never mind what's going on in people's individual hearts, minds and souls, but seeing that on a societal level is is really quite interesting and quite interesting to think that there was this intention to create some sort of spiritual oasis or El Dorado and, and have it be kind of pure if if you want to use that that terminology very oh, I think those puritans are utopian you know they're utopian in so yeah. many ways you know they really do believe that actually and that you know those early migrants think we need to set a beacon for old england and we will we will make it perfect and then they will follow us but of course what happens is that they don't manage to do it either because actually in the end they're not supermen they're humans yeah absolutely Malcolm, thank you so much for your time. I've got to ask before before you depart, what what's next? What what's next after after this latest book? I'm I'm working on um, escaped prisoners of war and partisans in uh, wartime Italy. So Brilliant. very different, but um, similar in some ways because it's actually as you know anybody who reads the Rune of a Witches knows that the in the epilogue I really show how one starts to try to understand these stories as a historian from the present and this is going to be the whole of this book about trying mm. to have one particular story uh, from the war so different in some ways but actually at its heart it's it's a it's a continuation of what i've always done very good well we'll certainly look forward to that and malcolm just to reiterate your book your latest book the ruin of all witches life and death in the new world it's available at all good 
bookshops in the UK, Waterstones, no doubt. Uh, it's been published in the United States as well, so it's available there. Mm-hmm. Yes, it yeah. is. Yeah. yeah, super. And uh, of course, on, on the ubiquitous Amazon as well. So Malcolm, thank you so much for your time on the Real Clear Values podcast. Uh, thank you for having me on, Tom. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. If you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable for themselves or their organization, then please send them this podcast. And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning and fulfillment for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program that will get you on your way. Just go to threestewardships.com or message me directly to tom at threestewardships.com. That's tom at threestewardships.com. Until next time, I'm Tom English and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit of sustainable success.